I realized my job was to awaken the possibility in other people. That is a line said by my guest today, who is Benjamin Zander, and Benjamin is one of the world's most well-known classical musicians and is a source of profound inspiration to so many people. I mean, he really is a deeply insightful conductor, a master teacher of music, and he really is an engaging speaker on leadership. And he's going to talk all about that, but he's also going to share the most impactful lessons he's learned on how to live a life from a place of radiating possibility and not a limiting fixed mindset like so many people have. I mean, he's just filled with passion and boundless energy, and he uses that energy to unlock the potential within individuals and organizations. And one of the organizations that he founded and is responsible for is the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. And we're going to dive so much into ways that we can explore how to channel more positive engaging energy into our group and our organization. So enjoy this conversation with Benjamin Zander. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you, what got you there? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Benjamin, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Thank you. I couldn't be better. Or as my student said when I gaily said to him, I said, John, how are you? He said, if I were any better, I'd be a twin. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. So I'm doing well and happy to be speaking with you and with your listeners. I, I feel very fortunate the opportunity to get to speak with you and share some of these lessons. And a place I thought would be fun to begin is actually around a quote that you and I both enjoy. And it's, if I were to wish for anything, I should not wish for wealth and power, but for the passionate sense of what can be. For the eye, which ever young and ardent sees the possible. Pleasure disappoints, possibility never. And what wine is so sparkling, what's so fragrant, what's so intoxicating as possibility. And I wanted to begin there because this conversation is gonna speak a lot around possibility. And I'd like to ask you a question around possibility. And it seems like a simple question, um, but one that led to you for an epiphany moment. So I'd like to start with, what is your job as a conductor? 
Well, it's a very complicated job. You have to do many, many, many things. And you're responsible for many things. In fact, you're responsible for everything. And that's why I think the conductor is a wonderful metaphor for life and for leadership. Because actually everything that happens in the orchestra and in the world of the conductor is his responsibility. And I say his, but of course now I include her in that because more and more fabulous young women conductors are coming up and there'll be a time when not too far ahead when there'll be an equal number of men and women conducting. That seems very strange now because there's almost none. But there was a time when there were no women orchestra players, remember that. I mean, they were, they were not allowed in the orchestra, except possibly the harpist, but everybody else had to be male. Well, that's a joke now. That my violin section last night in the rehearsal is all but one. The first violins are all women. <laughs> so things have changed. So the generic he, the conductor is responsible for everything that happens if... Um, something goes wrong, somebody plays a wrong note or comes in wrong, I choose to take responsibility for that. There's a classic example of that, which I mentioned in the book, The Art of Possibility, where we were playing the Mendelssohn Italian Symphony, and one of the violinists came in two bars early. Now, I didn't have anything to do with that. He made it completely on his own, independently, and quite noticeably so that it was so noticeable that I actually stopped, which I've never done in a concert before. It would make nonsense of the beginning. And at the intermission, my personnel manager said, I know who did that. Would you like to know? And I said, no, I did that. Now, I didn't actually play the violin, and I didn't do anything to cause him to come in two bars early. But I chose to take responsibility for it. Uh, we call that in the book uh, the being the board. In other words, you're not one of the players on the board. You're not the black or the white pieces. You're the board on which the game is played. And in that game, you can take responsibility for everything that happened. By saying, I did that, it immediately curtailed any further discussion, argument, the player wasn't reprimanded or fired or legal case or whatever comes out when you, when you get into a conflict. And the conflict always spirals down. And if you can find something that will give people either a sense of release of tension or laughter or another thing I do when, when musicians make mistakes, I tell them, don't make the traditional sort of grimace and rigid, you know the body collapses and so on. I say, raise your hand, lift them up, and say, "How fascinating!" Well, all my players and students are trained in that, so a mistake is no longer a problem uh, around my orchestra. And uh, for young people, that's tremendously important because they grow up in a state of high anxiety, competition, fear all looking, measuring, seeing where they fit in and whether they're going to make it and all of that, all that anxiety actually diminishes their capacity as artists because as artists we have to take risks and if you're worried all the time that you're going to make a mistake, then you're likely to take fewer risks and then you'll be a lesser artist. So I encourage people to take risks 
And if they make a mistake, how fascinating, because they can learn from it. Now already we're in a different world. I've taken away the hierarchical power of the conductor to control the life of the players, to fire the players, to reprimand them, to some way make their life miserable. And I've taken away the element of fear, which is a very powerful force. We should not forget that most people are functioning in their lives in an atmosphere of fear. That would be like a football player playing in the rain all the time. You just have to constantly take account of whether the ball will slip or the, 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 the conditions are not good around fear. That doesn't mean people can't achieve extraordinary things under fear, but it's not a good environment. And particularly for young people, it's not a good environment. A, A loving environment is much more productive. And I think we've discovered that as parents in the old days, fear in schools and in the family was the best way of getting people to conform and get things done. And, and so when when I was young, and I'm 84, just about 84, when I was in school, it was kids of 12, 13, 14 were regularly caned. I mean, that literally caned, I mean, very, very painful, um, whipped. And that now seems bizarre, but it was absolutely normal. I and mean, the whole thing was based, the whole organization was based on fear. So that uh, I've tried every strategy, every trick, every, and I do a lot of things, a lot of, you could call them strategies, you could call them, uh, I don't know, but I don't think of them as strategic. I think of them more as my job. You said, what is my job? My job is to create an environment in which people feel free and joyful and energized and loving and appreciated and uh, where they smile a lot and particularly where their eyes shine. Because if last night at the rehearsal, we had a string rehearsal on, it was the first rehearsal of the year and with the Boston Philharmonic, which is a fantastic orchestra. And at the end of the rehearsal, which is three hours long, everywhere I could see shining eyes. And they were so excited. They were excited to see each other. They were excited to be back at work. They were excited to be playing this incredible music. They were challenged by the difficulty. They were triumphant over their successes. I mean, it was just an environment in which people are bound to flower. And I use flower advisedly because I have a beautiful garden. I mean, my garden, you should see my garden front and back. The front is spectacular. The back is even more beautiful. And I have a sign outside which says, more beauty in the back, please peek. And so people (laughs) automatically come to the back. So I have a whole lot of new friends, which I wouldn't otherwise have had because they love my garden. So, but how a gardener, and I'm not the gardener in Sony, I only had one conversation with my gardener about the garden. And she said, when she started working, she said, what do you want? And I said, I want people to say thank you. And that was all. That's, and she's created the most gorgeous garden. I recommend it. 140 Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Come by, front and back. And 
you'll get a sense of, of exuberance and joy just being amongst all those flowers. She's great, I, and I let her do whatever she wants. The one condition is that I never get to see the bill. <laughs> She's got to give that directly to my accountant. <laughs> but I know what joy it gives and what life and love it gives. So in a sense, I'm like a gardener. I want the flowers to have water and light and 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 air and all the things that plants need and be careful because everything flourishes so be careful what you say everything flourishes not only the good things the the weeds flourish too all right so you have to be very careful that you're only putting in beautiful flowers and eliminating the weeds and that's what these assignments are that we give out that my you you know from the book the art of possibility that it's the larger letters of Rosamond Zander. That's my former wife, Rosamond Zander. And then my name is a little bit smaller, rightly, because she did most of the writing. But And she's a great thinker, and she's a thinker about possibility and about a very disciplined philosopher and psychotherapist, but also a painter and, and a gardener of human beings. And... Um, she provides the youth orchestra. This is 120 young people from the age of 12 to 21 who play at the level of a great orchestra, I mean, a world-class orchestra, and that we tour all around the world. And if people go on my website, which is org, they can listen to this unbelievable youth orchestra playing. They won't believe that it's kids. But each week we give them an assignment. And the assignment comes from Roz, and I deliver it. And I say, okay, this week's assignment is, and then uh, they listen, and then for the whole week they get to practice that assignment. And they're not assignments like they get in school. The ones they get in school are like a mountain. You climb the mountain, and when you've got there, you, you've accomplished the assignment. And you hope to get there before the other people get there so you get better marks. <laughs> These assignments, instead of being shaped like an apex, they're open like that. So an assignment like walk with spirit and love, <laughs> you can't accomplish that. You can live into it as a possibility. Do you see what I mean? There's a real difference there. It's not an accomplishment. It's you live into it as a possibility. Nobody accomplishes that, but it's like a vision. A vision is something you live into as a possibility. A mission you can accomplish. You can't say vision accomplished. <laughs> you can say mission. A mission is something I want to do this by then. Right, that's a mission. But a vision is an open-ended thing. So I say to them, okay, the assignment this week is come from the power of a child. That's one of my favorite ones that Roz came up with. That's a beautiful assignment because people forget, particularly when they get to those difficult ages when they're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 there, they forget the power that they had when they were little children, which was that everybody loved them and that they laughed a lot and they fell over and they didn't mind, you know, all that stuff. They were experimenting all the stuff. That, that's the power of a child. So if you say to somebody at that difficult stage of life, when they're growing up and they're trying to deal with the struggles of life, remember what it was like when you were a child and come with that sense of humor and sense of lightness and joy and 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 you know children cry and then they get over it very quickly <laughs> they don't they don't hold resentments you know that comes later so so those are powerful assignments another assignment was 
um, be more generous than you think you have the resources for. Hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you, you, you reacted exactly the way that our kids react. Hmm. Wow. What are my resources? How can I use them? What would happen if I use them, the resources beyond what I think I have? I mean, it's this kind of thinking that opens people's minds and prepares them for life and for leadership. And with the aim for the youth orchestra has a mission, shaping future leaders through music. And that's a beautiful idea. We're shaping future leaders, but we're doing it through the process of playing music, understanding music, loving music, sharing music, giving it away. And that is a very uplifting thing for them to do. So they're playing Einhelden, Leben, Strauss, and they're playing the Beethoven Fifth. And we last June, we went on tour to Greece and they were, the kids were stunned by the Greek people because they were so warm and enthusiastic and knowledgeable. And it was a complete privilege for them to be with them and to play music for them. Next year, we're going to South Africa. And imagine what it's like with 120 American kids. Well, they're not all, quotes American. They're from a wide range of backgrounds, but they all congregate in Boston for the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. It's very exciting. And then they write to me every week. They have white sheets on their stand. So the white sheet is their way of speaking to me because in an orchestra, one of the problems of an orchestra is it's a very hierarchical organization because the conductor is on a podium looking down and the players are not allowed to say anything and they're not allowed to do anything different from what he, I say he, generically uh, demands. And so it's an ultimate hierarchical situation. I say it's the last bastion of totalitarianism left in the civilized world. Well, but we can turn that upside down and I have turned it out upside down, both for me and for the players. I say, you have a white sheet, please speak back to me, sign it. You have to sign it so I know who you are. But tell me honestly anything you want about the music, about the situation, about my conducting, about what's working, what's not working. All of that is free and please share it. And I get these, and sometimes they email me long white sheets about what's going on in their life. Well, immediately the hierarchy is flattened. And so now the only interesting thing, and this is now my answer to your question, what is my job? My job is to create shining eyes, because if the eyes are shining, then I know that we have an atmosphere of possibility. And in an atmosphere of possibility, anything can happen. Uh, and the most amazing miracles can occur. In an atmosphere of fear, what you get is dis-ease, which is why it's called disease because right, a lot of disease comes at the front of the book, which you, you read, The Art of Possibility. There's a very beautiful quote by a very, very important woman, Christine Northrup, who was a doctor on TV. She was a TV doctor, and she wrote about the book that it was one of the most inspiring, practical, and uplifting books I've ever read. That's very nice. But now what comes next is important. She says, the very act of reading it with an open heart and mind will improve your health. Mm. Now, that's an extraordinary statement. 
she doesn't mean the book will improve your health. <laughs> what she means living this way will improve your health, thinking this way. Because naturally, in an atmosphere of joyful communication, interaction, love, appreciation, everything is more open. Everything, the, the breathing, the the lack of pressure. And I, th I think there's no doubt in my mind that it does affect our health. And very often people come to rehearsal and say, Mr. Sand, I'm not feeling very well. I may have to leave at the break. And then I see them at the end of the rehearsals four hours later and they're cheerful. I say, oh, you're still here. Oh, I feel fine. You know, <laughs> Because the music fills us with that kind of energy and joy. And I want to draw, I want to take this moment to draw people and this is not an advertisement, it's an invitation um, to my website. I have a new website, it's called vendorinsander.org, and it is a playground for music and possibility. It's a joyful thing, it's been built for a long, I didn't build it, and it's, it contains all my, uh, well, everything, everything that I believe in. It's a whole section on possibility, a whole section on the youth orchestra, on, on all these things that we're talking, and above all, music. And it's a, it's a guided tour through music. And I'm the guide, and I take people through and explain everything. And if people follow that, they will get a deep understanding of how classical music affects people in their lives. And it is profound. We say that. It's transformative. It changes your life. What do we mean? Well, that's where that the answer to that is in that website. It's very exciting. Everything is free on that website, not a single. You cannot pay for anything, even if you want to, because I believe this, this is the most precious gift we have to give, and we have to give it. Benjamin, this has me thinking about the beauty that exudes from you. And were you always like this? Well, no. Um, I was a difficult young fellow because I was always I was always very enthusiastic um, and energetic. But you were energetic. I was energetic, but one day I was beaten. I was seriously beaten. I mean, you've got to understand. Your, your your listeners have got to understand what that means. I was at a tough English boarding school called Uppingham. And I was there because the music was great there. And it, it wasn't a music school. It was a regular English public school. That means private school. <laughs> public as opposed to church school. That's what they, that's why they call public schools. It wasn't public at all. It was very expensive. I got a big scholarship because I was a good musician and they wanted musicians. And it was fantastic. Musically, I played, I sang, I, you know, it was great. But it was a very tough school in the old traditional English way. And um, I was not frequently beaten, but one day I was beaten by the prefects. That means they took a hard shoe and you would bend over. It was always at night. They told you during the day and you waited all evening in complete panic. And then they came after lights out, shone a light on your face and said, come and you would go to the bathroom and all the prefects would be there. And then one after another, they would be, you would bend over and they would smash as hard as they can on your backside. And the welts would last for, you know, a week. And so that was a pretty serious thing. The reason I was beaten on one occasion was because I was facetious. I had no idea what that meant. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, look it up afterwards. And they went ahead and beat. That's not a healthy atmosphere yeah. for a young person to grow up in. It was awful. 
awful. Now, all of that is gone. None of that exists anymore in England. But that was the way that we were brought up. And fortunately, at 15, I left home. Um, uh, and I wouldn't say this was a, a no normal part of life. This was an abnormal part of life. But I was also Jewish, and I was teased mercilessly for being Jewish. I was the only person in a school of two, 650 boys who admitted to being Jewish. And I mean, there must have been a few others, but they didn't. They wouldn't own up to it. And so I remember that one of my friends was called Nickerstaff, where he, he, I said, are you Jewish? He said, no, like that, as if I was insulted. Well, of course he was Jewish. You don't have a name like that without being Jewish. And instead of saying to a fellow Jew, uh, wow, it's hard around here, isn't it? He denied that he was, he was Jewish. Nobody else was there. So I was the only one. So people would would take every opportunity for accusing me of being a Nazi Jew. That was the thing they came up with. That was based on a lot of good, sound historical knowledge, right? <laughs> but fortunately, that was not my life. I had, I had amazing experiences as a young child. One of them, which I think is a great lesson, was when I was nine, I wrote some compositions and um, that was normal for me because my father was very musical and was playing the piano and I began to play the piano. And so I, um, and he was a fantastic musician as well as a great, great human being, a huge influence on me. And um, so one day I wrote these compositions and my mother, my father was in India at the time, actually. He was a great uh, leader in the world of uh, reconciliation and he became under... Gandhi became a friend of Gandhi, he wrote a book which influenced Gandhi and so he was invited to India to a conference and so he was away. And my mother took these compositions and put them into the local arts festival in the village where we lived outside London. And the gentleman came down from London, a famous composer, and he, he, I remember he held these compositions up in his head, he was very tall, and he waved these compositions in the air in front of the whole village gathered in the village hall. And he said, these compositions are so bad that I can't even consider them for the competition. And I think this young man should, for, should be discouraged from ever composing again. That's what he said, most extraordinary. My mother was perplexed. What was she supposed to do with this? You know, And my father wasn't there and didn't have anything to add. So she did something very interesting. She put the compositions in an envelope and she, together with the, with the remarks by, by Michael Head, who was the name of the composer, and sent them to Benjamin Britten. Now, <laughs> Benjamin Britten was the leading composer in England, one of the greatest composers of the world. She didn't know him. She just wanted a second opinion. <laughs> I love that. So... He called up four days later. I mean, literally, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and he said, hello, can I speak to your mother? This is Benjamin Britten. I said, Mom, it's Benjamin Britten. <laughs> Could have been Beethoven. And I was so excited. But anyway, he said to my mother, look, your, your son is nine. He's, the compositions are fine. Don't worry about it. And why don't you come and spend your summer holiday in Albro, where he lived by the sea? You can get a caravan and stay there. And maybe the parents can live in a pension. And I'll keep an eye on his development. Well, for the next three summers, we went to Albro. And Benjamin became my 
my my guide, my mentor, my my life, and his associate Imogen Holtz, who was the daughter of Gustav Holtz, became my teacher. Well, all of that came about. You could say my mother was acting like a pushy Jewish mother, but you could also say that she did not take no for an answer. You see, that was the story. That was the beauty of that story. And I've grown up with that attitude. I don't take no. When I hear the word no, I say, oh, well, that's the beginning of another conversation. Hmm. Transforms the whole thing. Yeah. And I have a lot of stories like that, I mean, could tell you, and many of them are in the book, The Art of Possibility, because they're illuminating. They're very, very illuminating. And another story which I learned, which also had a part to do with you, you asked the question, how did I get here? Well, when I was 14, I met a young cellist, and it turns out he was born on the same day. We had the same life, essentially. He was Indian, uh, Silanese, as it was in those days. And I was in London. It turned out that we not only were born on the same day, but we played the piece, same piece when we played for each other. It was extraordinary. And he, being a Hindu, um, great cellist in Silanese, grew up to be one of the great cellists, Rohan Dasaram, fantastic cellist. But he thought that I had the same horoscope as he did. And so because of that, he went to his teacher, Kasado was the greatest teacher, I mean, the greatest cellist of his age, fantastic, and, and told him about this young boy in England who had the same horoscope. So one day the phone rang and it was Kasado saying, come and play for me. <laughs> so then he invited me to come for the summer to Siena, to Florence, and to study for a few weeks in Florence, and then to go to Siena, the great school in Siena, the music school, Accademia Chigiana. And at the end of the summer, I went to him and I said, um, well, I have, you know, what should I work on? I have, I'm going back to England. He said, why? And I said, well, I've got to go to school. And he said, why? <laughs> So uh, he said, no, if you want to be a cellist, you have to stay. And well, So I called up my father and I said, Dad, he, he, he wants me to stay in Florence. And so my father went to the headmaster, or as you called the high master of St. Paul's School, which is where I was at this point, and sat in his great office and told the story. And the high master said, Dr. Sandler, how many times will your son get an opportunity like this? And my father said, probably never. And he said, so let him go. Let him go. Let him go for a year. See how it works. And if he wants to come back, he'll be welcome. And I didn't come back. I went for five years to Casado. It changed my life. And thousands and thousands and thousands of other people through me. Because what I learned from him was absolutely priceless. And I couldn't have. You know, I have something I'd love to do if you would allow me, which is, I have a little piece here of Casado playing, and I would love to play it. And it's four minutes and 16 seconds. And if people would listen as impossibility, in other words, what could one learn from listening to a truly great artist, producing an incredibly beautiful sound with sensitivity, with timing, with intimacy. It's almost as if he's whispering in your ear and telling the story of a lost relationship or something, and with facility and with a kind of technical accomplishment that is just, it's four minutes, 
And it's the kind of playing that can change a person's life. So I'm going to press a button and we're going to play this piece. And four minutes later, and you know, I asked people, this was played in 1927 on gut strings. And if the people listening could just close their eyes and just listen to what a world is being created by this sound.
So beautiful, so beautiful. And you spent five years with a man like that, traveling with him, helping him, turning pages at concerts, talking with him, taking lessons sometimes at 10 o'clock at night for two hours in a tower in Florence. You know, the, the high master of St. Paul's made a good, a good call. So that I've taken that sound and that way of playing into my DNA. That's that I don't have to think about it. It's there. And when I conduct, that sound is being generated through my body because of the influence that I had. I can't explain it. I can't tell you how it happened scientifically. But I feel it all the time. And it's, it's very, very profound. And so the lesson there is... Ask yourself, how many times are you going to get a chance to do this? And, and don't stop doing something um, because you may not get another chance. So that, that was a very, very important step. And, you know, he was such an amazing man because my, my father couldn't ever find out what he charged for the lessons. He wouldn't answer. And my father didn't have much money. I mean, he was a refugee from... Germany, and, and this was early in the 1951, you know, we hadn't recovered from the war yet. And so it was uh, it was difficult, but he wanted me to have this opportunity, and, and Casado would never answer. Finally, my father came to, to, to Italy then and to find out, well, because his lesson could be incredibly expensive, and some of them were two or three hours long. And finally... Casado, after he had had me play to show how much progress I'd made, he said, my father said, but, but dear maestro, how much do I owe you? And Casado said, if I charged you what my lessons were worth, you could never pay it. So I didn't charge you. And it's had such a profound effect. And excuse me, I'm... I'm you know, emotional about it because he taught me for five years without charging anything. And since then, I've never charged a student for a lesson. I couldn't. How could I? And my my website is totally free. I cannot ask people to pay for this gift that we have. So it's it's a different world. And I'm so grateful that I had that world. Ben, being able to reflect on that for over 70 years now, what do you make of these inflection points? You don't notice them. That's the amazing thing. You don't realize you're in an inflection point. I mean, you might notice it. I mean, I was, I was fired twice. I was fired twice. And 
once I had a conflict with the board of the Civic Orchestra, it was, I started with the Civic Orchestra in Boston 50 years ago, exactly, the exact time, 50 years ago. Um, and after seven years, the board decided not for bad reasons that I was not the right conductor for that orchestra because the repertoire that I loved, the symphonies of Gustav Mahler and Bruckner, these big, huge, romantic uh, works, was not their cup of tea. What they wanted was a cup of tea. <laughs> they, you know, they would. The board went out for dinner. They had a had a nice dinner, and then they went to the concert. They wanted entertainment, and one of them actually asked me, "Why don't you play some Chopin symphonies?" Well, of course, there are no symphonies by Chopin. What do you mean? Meant was something light, something entertainment. You know, not not a heavy Mahler symphony, but the orchestra loved them playing them. They, this was their dream to play these works. And so when they fired me, the whole orchestra left with me. <laughs> so, so that we, 96 players, chum, they went and we started a new orchestra. It was called the Boston Philharmonic. Can you, That's how the Sorry to cut you off. Can you take me to that moment? I want to know what you feel in that moment where everyone who's a part of that. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I mean, it was devastating, of course. And it was in all big arguments and articles in the Boston Globe and, and, and so on. It was a very big event in, in the Boston musical world. And um, I was surrounded by some amazing people who, after they tried very hard to get the board to change their mind and realize they'd already had another conductor. So, so that wasn't going to happen. So then they said, okay, we've got to start a new orchestra. And by that time, I had a remarkable partner in Roz, my my now former wife, Rosamond, the author of the book, The Art of Possibility, and incidentally, a new book, which your readers should also know about, called Pathways to Possibility, which is all, this is entirely her book, The Art of Possibility, we did together. And she uh, guided us into that state of, possibility where you find the energy and you find the people and the resources and and you create something new and the thing i created out of that catastrophe was the best thing that could ever have happened to me which is this spectacular orchestra called the boston philharmonic which has kept many of its characteristics of being a community orchestra but got better and better and better and better and now it's it's a level it's an orchestra on the level of the highest level sometimes confused with the great orchestras of the world so couldn't have been better so my father told a wonderful story which i love to tell I told this at his funeral. We had more laughter at my father's funeral than most people have at weddings because he was so, he had such a humorous way of being and, and could always see the, the humorous side of things. Um, he said, he used to say, there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. Well, of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> but this was the story he told. It's very profound. He said, uh, a man went to his rabbi and said, Rabbi, you told me a story of something with praise. I can't remember. It was a prayer. And the rabbi said, yes, it is a prayer. It goes like this. When you have good news, you thank the Lord. And when you have bad news, you praise the Lord. Ah, yes, that's right, rabbi. But rabbi, how do you know which is the good news and which is the bad news? And the rabbi says, you're very wise, my son. So just to be on the safe side, Always thank the Lord. Now that's that's profound. 
because it does we don't know when something happens how it's going to turn out we just don't know we think we know and we think we have to say something that's why we have 24 hour news with people responding instantaneously to everything that happens but we have no idea what's going to happen in the long run and out of the as i say the catastrophe but you know it wasn't a catastrophe because the board of the civic orchestra they knew something very important which was that their audience and the kind of atmosphere needed something light and that's what they wanted they didn't want a deeply serious um you know probing kind of uh, that's not what they 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 got the wrong guy all right now the guy was good and he managed to make the orchestra terrific but then the orchestra left so they got a new orchestra and um and so they were i understand why they did that i didn't understand it at the time i thought they were stupid no they weren't stupid at all so then i could create a new orchestra in the new mode in the in the in the mode of possibility we we built the whole orchestra around the ideas of the practices in the book the art of possibility ben you've brought up your father multiple times and i hope you can share another story about him speaking of creation at a catastrophe oh i know what you're referring to yeah uh, yeah it's a great story well it's one of those worst stories one of those kind of fundamental stories which i keep coming back to he uh, suffered greatly uh in the ways that so many uh, people uh, under authoritative regimes do he was a victim of the nazi regime and he lost his mother in the concentration camps it wasn't actually auschwitz it was lots i think but it doesn't matter they were all the same he she was gassed and so were several other members of her of that generation but now you imagine he's a successful lawyer in berlin he's got a flourishing practice as a lawyer he's wealthy he's a brilliant musician he has wonderful family connections and he loses it all everything and he comes to england just getting out of time and and no, nothing is left he has to start again from the beginning with three i was born in england in 1939 and he always kept this sort of buoyant atmosphere and approach but there was one spectacular part of it that that uh, because in 1940 i think it was when hitler was in paris it became dangerous for the english they started rounding up all the german men and they didn't make fine distinctions between the uh, the keeper of the elephants at the london zoo who wasn't jewish at all he was just a german man and they rounded them up put them in internment but he had to be released in a few days because the elephants refused to eat and so he was gone in 3 days they they brought him back but they rounded up all the men and the women were left to fend for themselves and look after their children and they had no income i mean it was a catastrophe well america did the same with the japanese it was a 
really stupid idea. But there they were, 2,000 men in the Isle of Man, all of whom had lost family members and their country and their resources. And it, really, the depression level was extreme in this place. My father said that several of the prisoners would just sit and walk, look at the barbed wire fence all day because they were so depressed. He looked around and said, a lot of intelligent people here. We should have a university. <laughs> and so he and friends put together a university. And at one point, they had 46 classes going each week. There was no books, no paper, and no blackboard and chalk, nothing. There's people talking. Now, that is possibility. It's not the same as positive thinking. Positive thinking is something quite different. Positive thinking is pretending things are good when really you know they're shitty. That's not, that's not valuable. That's actually part of the downward spiral. Possibility is creating something when there's nothing there. You, you see, that's why this book is so brilliantly named, Pathways to Possibilities. There's always a pathway. You can always find a pathway. And it takes imagination, it takes open-heartedness, it takes uh, a kind of a certain kind of delight and energy and, and willingness, you know, open-hearted mainly. But there's always a pathway, however, dear. Now, you're in Florida in the middle of this catastrophic uh, hurricane which has just passed by, and you're in the midst of it. And it's very easy to get into despair and to get into all the other downward spirals of anger, you know, frustration and cynicism and why do these stupid politicians, you know, it's so easy to come, it's automatic. But what you, and we've all seen these examples of people with tremendous courage and generosity and warm spiritedness who help other people and the great stories come out of that. So the, the discipline of possibility, and it is a discipline, it's a rigorous discipline, and especially a rigorous discipline in language, because a single word, you see, if you say to somebody, I'm so happy you've come into my life, but that one word, you, uh, you can take a, a gallon of possibility and ruin it with one thimble full of downward spiral. That's how precious it is. And it has to be nurtured and cared for with utmost tenderness because it can disappear very quickly. And, and when a culture as ours has become very argumentative and very litigious and, and, and angry, and it's, it's very difficult to keep the that conversation of possibility alive. And one of the things that I feel my role is, is to keep it alive through the musical community, through the way I run rehearsals. I never get angry in rehearsals. I never blame people for playing wrong notes or, you know, it's always suggesting. And if people go on the website, and there's a series of classes, which I do, called interpretation classes. And it's usually me and one or two or three other people training them in a piece of music. So for one thing, the, the person who's watching gets to know that piece of music. But the other thing is, how do you get somebody to play better than they're already playing? Well, usually there's a place where they're stopping. There's something in the way. And if, if 
somebody comes along and pushes them through that, <gasps> it's like a revelation. You always get that kind of brilliant moment when the person suddenly feels liberated and can fly because they've been in a cage of some kind. It could be a cage of some restriction of a teacher who blamed them or a parent who mistreated them as a youngster or whatever it was, or just fear or whatever it is. But you have it over and over again. Through the music, they get this liberation, this transformation, and the, sh the eyes are shining. It's just, it's amazing. Often tears or laughter, the same thing. Tears and laughter are essentially the same. They're the deep expression coming out physically. And we want both. I mean, I'm sure that many people, while that Chopin was going, which I must have heard 150 times, I had tears in my eyes. Again, again, again. Because the music has a capacity to touch on those parts of our brain and psyche, which are related to the past and related to deep relationships. And they can activate those. It's mysterious. We don't quite know how it works. But it's unfair. Of course, we all know it from pop tunes and songs that bring back memories of relationships and so on. There, music can do that much better than words can, and much more. Mendelssohn said, "Music is much more precise than language." <laughs> what he meant is, it gets right to the heart. The you can't. If I say, "Bum bim bum 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 bum," try and stay gloomy while I'm singing that. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> Because the energy of the music and the way the music is shaped going up in C major and the trumpets playing and so on, you can't resist it. And so too at the funeral, we play the sad music to get everybody in the room or in the country or in the world, like when Diana, uh, Princess Diana died, they played the heavenly uh, Nimrod variation from Elgar's Enigma variations. And I, that's on my website too, because we play that every year with the youth orchestra. And I talk about that and explain it because I'm a guide. I love to guide people to understand how, how this great art works and why it enriches our life. It's not like wallpaper. Wallpaper is just there to you know, cover up the, 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 what do you call the, the stuff, the board behind it. No, music is comes into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives and into our bodies and creates a transformational experience. So we see the world in a different way and our eyes light up. And if the, if the music doesn't do that, don't blame the people who are listening. Think about who, because I say that, if the eyes aren't shining, you get to ask the question, who am I being that the eyes are not shining? Why are my, the, the eyes in my orchestra not shining? Or why are my children's eyes not shining? Or why are my spouse's eyes not shining? Or my workers, in the, in, why aren't their eyes shining? Who am I being that that's happening? So the person to transform is yourself. And that's a wonderful opportunity because we can always renew that transformation. And the key to that transformation is a wonderful story which a great American Russian musician, Boris Goldovsky. Goldovsky was the voice of the Metropolitan Opera on Sunday afternoons. He would explain the operas like nobody who could explain the opera. He told me he was a good friend of mine, wonderful man, lived in Brookline. And he told me one day, he told it in a Russian accent, but I'm not going to try to imitate it. He told two prime ministers are sitting in a room 
and they're having conversation like prime ministers, prime ministers do. And uh, uh, suddenly the door bursts open, a man comes in and he's hissed, just angry and upset and banging his fist and shouting. And the conversation is completely disrupted. And the, the local prime minister says, Peter, please remember rule number six. <gasps> oh, yes, I'm so sorry. And he bows, he apologizes, he walks out of the room. They go back to their conversation. And 20 minutes later, the door bursts open. A woman comes in, in out of control. I mean, she's hysterical. Her hair's flying all over the place. She's just completely, and her mascara's running. I mean, it's just, and he says, Maria, please remember rule number six. <gasps> oh, yes, I'm so sorry. And she bows and she apologizes, calmly walks out of the room. And, of course, then it happens the third time because it always happens three times. And the third time, the visiting prime minister comes in the other one, and he says, my dear colleague, I can't imagine what I've just seen. Three people completely out of control. And you just say, rule number six, and they're restored to calm. W would you be willing to tell me what rule number six is? Oh, yes, rule number six. Very simple. Don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. So the, the other prime minister says, oh, that's a very good rule. What may I ask of the other rules? He says, there aren't any. <laughs> there's no. a lot of wisdom in that story oh my goodness that's the key now the conductor's version of rule number six is don't take yourself so goddamn serious take me goddamn seriously <laughs> that <laughs> you know the story of Herbert von Karajan the great conductor he got into a limousine after a rehearsal and he shouted at the driver quick quick uh, hurry drive go go and the driver said very good sir where to he said doesn't matter they need me everywhere <laughs> So those are the two models, right? One is dominating, self-serving, self-absorbed, and essentially about the ego. The other is we are servants. We are servants, and and that's uh, and the question is, are our does our flock? I mean, I think of myself as a vicar. You know, I'm a good vicar, but people don't come to the church to see the vicar. Right. The vicar who thinks they do gets taken away in a white van. Right? That's not. It's not what it's about. Right? It's about serving the flock. And if the flock is not happy, not flourishing, the eyes aren't shining, then the vicar better start thinking about what he's doing. And I think this is true of politicians, true of teachers, it's true of parents, it's true of everybody who's privileged to be leading somebody else. Uh, or a dog, you know, an eight-year-old child with a dog is also a vicar. Yeah. You know? Ben, your question uh, around, for, for me specifically, why are my children's eyes not shining? Yeah. One of the most important and profound questions I've ever seen and then asked of myself. Um, yeah. And I, it's just beautiful. And I thank you for that. That's a, a gift you shared with me. Ben, another one of the gifts that you've given is an exercise you've done with your students, and that's giving them an A. Ah. And I would love for you to, to explain this exercise you do. Right. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting thing because um, grading is something that is so intrinsic part of our educational system that you can't actually imagine the education without it. And so we grade our students and often on a bell curve so that we get a nice shape to the... <laughs> to the, so, you know, from the lowest grade to the highest grade. 
actually it has nothing to do with education, but it came home to me in the following way. I, I taught a class at the New England Conservatory for some 30 years, a class in musical interpretation. And of course I had to grade the students always. And one day I came home and said to Roz, uh, I can't remember if we, if we were separated at that point, I think we may have been. In any way, I said, Roz, this is impossible, the situation, because these young musicians, and they're not so young, they're, they're graduate students. That means they're nearly in the profession. And they're, they are so worried about their grades, about the competition, about the auditions, about the reviews, about everything that is going to measure them. What can we do? Because they, they, you could see it on their body language, their face, the, the, the tension, all of that was, was stopping them being fully available to this great music they were playing. And she said, well, give them all an A at the beginning of the year, the first class. And I thought, what? How, how's that going to work? And she said, well, it's not enough, because if you give them all an A, they'll still be thinking, but where do I really fit? You know, what's my grade really? So she came up with another idea, or maybe I came up with the idea, I don't remember, it doesn't matter, which was to ask them to write a letter at the beginning of the year, dated the May in May of the end of the year. When so the the date on the letter is May of the following year when the class ends. And it begins with these words, Dear Mr. Sander, I got my A because then they would write a letter describing who they'd become by May of the next year. And not I intend or I want or I hope, but really describing who they were in the, in the full description of their, who they'd become. And then they would describe how they got there, which is essentially what your program is about. <laughs> and I started practicing that and it had spectacular results because for one thing, once they got a description down on paper of who they were going to be next May, first of all, their joy and their delight in being there and expressing that uh, was palpable. And the other thing is the person I taught was the person that they'd written about. So I wasn't teaching the person who was struggling and fun. I only teach A students, that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> and that does wonders for me because I'm surrounded by stars. You know? So it, it changed the whole atmosphere of the class. One, one of the students wrote, as I walk down the corridor to your class, my, my feet become lighter and lighter. Right? I just feel that sense of joy and anticipation of being in a space in which the best I have to offer is recognized and sought and where you speak to the best part of somebody, the part they, they want to succeed, they want to contribute. And it's a fantastic thing, thing that it does for people. And I give an aid to everybody. That's, that's what I do. Because it's not just in the class. You give an aid to a taxi driver, give an aid to a waitress or to the people on the street. I, when I say more beauty in the back, please peek, to random people walking by in the street, I'm giving them an A because they could break into my house. No, but it doesn't occur to me. 
it's a it's a way of being in the world. Yeah. You basically give everybody an A, and and it uh, it works out pretty well. One one member of the Philharmonia, I do a lot of work with the Philharmonia Orchestra in London, is one of the great orchestras of the world. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And one of them, one of the players said to me, something happens when you come here, and I don't know what it is. And I come as a guest conductor. And I didn't say it's because I give everybody an A, because <laughs> that wouldn't be, uh, you also don't need to explain it. It's just a way of being, and it's it's trusting, it's, and and it's very important for us to learn this because we we give people very low grades and expect them to do well, and it it doesn't serve anybody. Ben, I, I need to just thank you for a minute. Your work and these words have come up throughout this discussion. After seeing your talks, hearing your talks, reading what you've written, there's a lightness. It, it feels. Oz has written. Yeah, we, we should include because this wouldn't be the. This is a partnership, and it's very important. I want people to to understand that this is, it's it's her work, and I'm 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 a good vicar. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't want to interrupt your. No, the, the, well, the work you and Roz did. There's there's a lightness you leave with, and it feels like a deep breath. And it's, it's really work that I recommend. Uh, I can't recommend highly enough. And, and there, there's one final question I would love to ask you though. So say you could do this, Ben, interview long form where you can just ask questions of someone. Who would you love to sit down with and do this with someone dead or alive? This is the only time I've paused for breath. Um, of course, I want to ask Beethoven some important questions because I've wrestled with his music for 50 years and I always think I get closer and closer and closer to what I understand. But there are some real questions that I have to ask him that he has not resolved for me. And so I have to guess. And I think I've made pretty good guesses, but oh God, I'd love to know. Do you have an example of one of those questions? Well, yes, he loved that when the metronome was discovered and invented, it wasn't discovered, it was invented by his friend in Vienna, Meltzel, came with this metronome that could tell how fast the music should be. And he was absolutely thrilled. And so he started using it and he told everybody, you've got to use the metronome because it's the only way you'll know how my music's supposed to go. And so... Most people completely ignored it, and most musicians didn't, don't think about it. I've been thinking about it, as I say, for 50 years. What I want to know from him, yeah, there are a few very specific things that are not absolutely settled, but let's leave those aside. I want to know whether he wanted us to follow the metronome exactly or to use it as a guide, you know, to come and go a little spreading of the temper. That's what I think. I think that my work has been, I've been like a very de dedicated uh, um, servant of the master. 
uh, my recording with the ninth of the ninth symphony. It's on the website. You can find it with an explanation of all of this. Two and a half hours of explanations, fascinating stuff. Um, and I was following uh, like a disciple the, the the word of the master. Now the next stage, and we're going to play the Beethoven Ninth again in Boston in February, February 24th in Boston, and then the 26th, we're going to take it to Carnegie Hall and play it. And this time, because I've already done it once there before, very religiously following the master in every word. Now I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to play it the way I feel it, guided, of course, by what he, what he said. And all that I know and all that I've learned and practiced, but liberated and free to take it wherever my imagination takes me. And I want to say, would you, is that okay? <laughs> he, probably, he probably would say that's okay. Yeah. Ben, this, is, this has been a, an absolute delight and, and privilege for me to get to speak with you. Of course, we're yeah. going to have everything linked up in the show notes, benjaminzander.org. Is there any final thing you would like to leave us with or, or where we should go or is the website the best spot? I think the website's great. The book is fantastic and it's been uh, read by millions. I don't know, it's in 22 languages now. The The TED Talk is a 20 minutes distillation of this in which I take a piece and show how it can grow from ordinary, from a seven-year-old child to to artistry and that's been seen i i believe by 22 million people at this point all over the world and i find people but you know what i'd leave you with is a thought that dostoevsky said which my father was one of the wonderful things my father said dostoevsky apparently said with an intelligent person even conversation is a pleasure you guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.